And how wonderful, how marvellous is my Saviour's love for me. And that's what we're here for. We're looking to Christ. We're looking to God our Father. And uh, also a happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Uh, So today we'll be looking at the true Father in heaven. And he's the one who's given us his word. This word is what has all authority. There's no authority apart from what God has presented to us in his word. And so we'll be looking at that today. Um, It's a... um, Thank you, Pastor Werner, for stepping in last week because at that point I was a bit caught up with work and he uh, stepped up and uh, took the place where I was meant to be speaking. But here I am this morning, by the grace of God, I, I was almost caught out with work again, but God made it work, and so here I am this morning. Now, as we come before the Lord and read his words, let's uh, stand together. So today I'm reading from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through to 17. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. I'll be reading from the NASB, and later on I'll be just using the New King James Version. So from verse 10, Do we not all have one Father? Is it not one God who has created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord eliminate from the tents of Jacob everyone who is awake and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of armies. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing, because he no longer gives attention to the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And why the one? He was seeking a godly offspring. Be careful then about your spirit, and see that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Lord, we pray that your word will speak to all of us today. We know that your word has been given to us and we ask that you would open up our hearts 
And by your Holy Spirit, change our hearts, direct us to you, focus our attention on you. Lord, we come before you this morning. We give this day to you. We desire to declare your name, your greatness, your holiness. We desire that your name be made great amongst the nations. In Jesus' name. Well, you may be seated. So the text specifically I'm looking at this morning is from verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Today I'll present you a message which has been laid on my heart. It is a difficult message, however, it is relevant to all of us. It will be from a context you may not have considered. This passage is indeed addressing the matters of marriage, divorce and the family. However, I'm not going to direct, directly address this today. Of course, implicitly, this scripture is commanding us, do not divorce your spouse. But fundamentally, verse 16 is not a command. Instead, it is informing us of the very nature and attributes of God. Listen to it again. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. When we consider this scripture from the perspective of the revelation of the nature of God, all of a sudden it is relevant to all of us, whether we are married or not. So for some background context, in my life I grew up attending charismatic and AOG churches. I don't think that was always a bad thing, and I was influenced by some very sound and godly people there. But when I went to Bible college and studied the scriptures, and church history, particularly the reformers, I've come to the decision that in many evangelical churches today, including the one that I grew up in, there is a famine of the knowledge of God. Paul Washer says it this way, listen to yourself speak saying, the knowledge of God has no practical application. Do you know why all your Christian bookstores are filled up with self-help books and five ways to do this or that and six ways to be godly and two, ten ways not to fall? Because people don't know God. And so they have been given all sorts of trivial little devices of the flesh to keep them walking as sheep ought to walk, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Why the rampant sinning even amongst God's people? It is a lack of the knowledge of God. John Calvin put it this way. It is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For such is our innate pride that we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not. If we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also, he being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. This is a, an old English translation from German. So I'll read it again because this is very important for the modern church as it was back then when he was dealing with the Catholic church. 
It's relevant today. It is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself, for such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly and impurity, convinced, however, we are not. If we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also, he being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. Thus, armed with with the conviction that the knowledge of God is the very foundation for Christian life, we can observe the seriousness of what Malachi is conveying here. The very context of Malachi is after generations of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. He remained faithful. Chapter 1 is reminding the Israelites of this and rebuking them for profaning the name of the Lord. Initially, this is by offering contemptible offerings. In chapter 2, the priests are rebuked for failing to follow God's ways and being partial to the law. They pursued other gods and finally they are rebuked for dealing treacherously with their wives and abandoning the wife of their youth and marrying the women of foreign gods. God never compared them to other people who were doing better. He never gave them therapy or marriage counselling or appealed to the wisdom of men. To remedy this horrific situation, God revealed a glimpse of his majesty in order to strike dread in their hearts for their sinful ways. This morning we'll look at this scripture and learn three attributes of God that will serve as a foundation for all our conduct. The first attribute of God is God is a covenant-keeping God. That God remains true to his word is reinforced all throughout scripture. God commands his people to utter truth. Jesus is described as the way, the truth, and the life. Especially true are his promises. We see a glimpse of this in Genesis 3 when God declares the consequence of consequences of mankind's sin. In verse 15, God says to the serpent, and I'll put an enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise was fulfilled at the cross. That God is a covenant-keeping God is continued. There are three prominent covenants in the scriptures. The first one was with Abraham. The next one was the Old Covenant with Israel, and the third was the New Covenant. First, we'll look at the one he made with Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. God gave this covenant in seemingly impossible circumstances. He promised that a nation would come forth from Abram even when his wife was barren. Yet God did fulfill that covenant, and through Jesus Christ all people on earth were blessed. This covenant was unconditional, and it was never rendered obsolete. 
to this day, God is fulfilling his covenant with Abraham. The second covenant we'll look at was the old covenant God made with Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and to tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This covenant was a conditional covenant between God and Israel. Notice what he said. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Can you answer me? Did God keep this covenant? Yes. Did the Israelites keep this covenant? No. This is continually testified throughout Scripture. Was this covenant then without purpose? No. It established that God is the perfect lawgiver and that we are utterly incapable of keeping his law. The Israelites saw the hand of God. They saw the mighty works he did for them in delivering them from the Egyptians. They saw his hand of provision. And when he had provided all their needs, from the water to manna and quail, he sustained their sandals and clothing as they wandered through the desert for 40 years. Yet in spite of the goodness of God, the Israelites continually rebelled against God. This covenant served a distinct purpose demonstrating the depravity of man's heart and his inability to do anything to please God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, because man was unable to keep the old covenant. The old covenant, in turn, was directing man to Christ. Finally, Jeremiah reveals the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, from verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. The writer of Hebrews continues in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
The third and final covenant rendered the old covenant obsolete, not because the covenant was a failure, but because the old covenant could not be kept by human hands. It instead was the foundation for the new covenant. Instead of God's law being written in stone, it would be written by God on the hearts of men. This is the covenant that leads to salvation and true reconciliation between God and man. This new covenant is not conditional upon the works of man because Romans chapter 8 verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned in sin in the flesh. This new covenant is not conditional upon the utterly incapable works of human hands, but rather upon the sovereign and able will of God, whose promises are sure and immutable. God has never broken any of these covenants. We can place our full confidence in the promises of God's word. He will never fail us because he is a covenant-keeping God. He is the Father who will sustain his children. They have full assurance in his word. When we have any needs, whether they are physical or spiritual, we call out to God who faithfully provides for all his children. When men fail us, we run to the one who is strong. When our hearts fail us, we run to the one who is able to write his laws on our hearts. Therefore, this is why God hates divorce. He is a covenant-keeping God, and as his people, he expects us to be a covenant-keeping people. Thanks be to God that he has provided the new covenant, which enables us, through his work in our lives, to reflect the character of God. The second attribute of God we learn in this scripture is God is a God of wrath. God hates divorce. This is very strong language, reflecting the seriousness of it. This is a doctrine that is hard to consider, and many fail to address this wider context in the wrath of God. The particular word hate is used in numerous occasions throughout the Old Testament. There are both negative and positive presentations of this word, which in Hebrew simply means, as it is translated, to hate. There are about 25 instances where this word occurs in a positive, in other words, righteous manner. They, are, they make a sobering study. I'll cover a few pertinent scriptures. A few, particularly in the Psalms, are used of men hating the conduct of and people who are unrighteous. The rest describe the things that God hates. What is unsettling is that many of these things that God hates are the things that our natural man relishes. And thus it is difficult to contemplate these scriptures, and most churches will simply ignore them. God hates how the other nations serve their gods, particularly in the murder of babies and children. He hates those who practice and relish violence. He hates those who shed innocent blood, those who devise wicked plans, and those who are swift in running to evil. He hates a false witness and those who dis sow discord among brethren. He hates robbery for burnt offerings. In Isaiah, he even hates their congregations, calling of assemblies 
and sacrifices when conducted in futility. My soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Finally, in Malachi, we see that God hates covenant breaking. What can we learn from this? First, the seriousness of the nature of sin. Many of these things that God hates are things that we so easily do. They are not just sins that we'd consider serious like murder or sexual immorality. This makes us all guilty of breaking God's righteous standards. In fact, in Psalm 5 verse 5 states, You hate all workers of iniquity, making not only the sin, but the sinner the object of God's hatred. Secondly, we are commanded to hate the things that God hates. In Psalm 97 verse 10, you, love, you who love the Lord hate evil. There is a real sense in which if you are truly born again, your heart will be full of hatred. Not the hatred of people, but the hatred of things, the things that God hates. You will not be given, you will not be rejecting sin because you are told so, but simply because of the new heart that God has given you. You hate that sin. If you attempt to eat food that is rotten, your body will be repulsed by it and you will reject it. You cannot consume the same food that pigs or dogs will eat because your nature is different and you are not a dog or a pig. If you are a genuine Christian, you will be repulsed by the things that the world enjoys because your nature has been transformed by God and you no longer belong to the world. Thirdly, we must find comfort in this righteous hatred of God. We must consider why God considers this covenant breaking in marriage so seriously. It was because they had dealt treacherously with their wives. God had tasked these Israelite men with the responsibility to care for their wives, to provide for them and to protect them. Instead, these men abandoned their wives and left them destitute so that they could marry the women who were daughters of strange gods, who were trained up in the service and worship of false gods. Just as God cared for the supplications and tears of Hannah when she cried at the house of the Lord, God cares for the women who had been abandoned by the husbands who were responsible for them. We can take comfort in the truth that God will never abandon his people and Christ will never divorce his church. God is the Father who will never fail his children. Thirdly, God is the sovereign owner. Historically and biblically, marriage is a matter of ownership. In these days, it is not a popular concept because of our modern society's worship of autonomy. Yet it was foundational principle of stable civilizations. This is why a father gives his daughter in marriage and why the prospective husband had to ask him. This was the cultural norm for many societies. The husbands bore the ownership and responsibility for their wives and their children. However, there is a distinct difference between this concept of ownership and Christi in Christianity and the rest of the world. In Ephesians chapter five, we read, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing 
of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Christ purchased his bride with his own blood. He obviously has a vested interest in her care and her nourishment. He gave his life for her. And this is the very thing the Apostle Paul appeals to when he admonishes men about their conduct to their wives. They are to care for them just as they would for their own bodies. In fact, it is beyond this that they would be willing to lay down their lives for their wives. The Israelite men had rejected this responsibility by abandoning the wife of their youth and pursuing the daughters of strange gods. They had forgotten that God had given them stewardship of their wives, who should be considered God's daughters. In verse 10, in the broader context of this passage, their wives are considered their brothers. The reasoning is that they are not common possessions that you dispose at will. They are equal in value and share the same God as Father. These men could not abandon their wives without facing the wrath of God. God would hold these men accountable for the care of their wives and their families they were entrusted with. This is why you see a significant difference in the treatment of women and children in Islam. In Islam, women and children are often used as human shields. Aisha, Muhammad's favourite wife, complained to him that the wives of the Christians were treated better than the Muslim wives. Compare this to the event of the Titanic, when men were forced at gunpoint to remain on the sinking ship so that the women and children could board the life rafts. This cultural phenomenon did not occur in a vacuum. It was because it was influenced by a Christian worldview that dictated that men would lay down their lives for their families because Christ laid down his life for the church. What are the implications of this principle of ownership for us? First, in light of the attributes of God, the bride of Christ belongs to Christ. He will care for her. He is jealous for her. He will nourish her. This bride does not belong to you. She does not belong to the pastor. She does not belong even to the church. She belongs to Christ. Therefore, as members of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, seek her peace, seek her unity, seek her comfort, and nourish her with good doctrine. Christ is jealous for his bride, and thus we should look out for one another, because we have all been purchased by his precious blood. Secondly, because you belong to Christ, conduct yourselves as such. The Apostle Paul uses the example of athletes, so in a similar manner, I'm going to draw an illustration from sport. 
When we were in the USA a couple of months ago, a friend took me to a soccer game. In fact, this was the first time ever I attended a live game in my life. It was quite an experience and the atmosphere was definitely electric. Atlanta United were playing against the Colorado Rapids. I enjoyed observing the various traditions they had. If you had supported a particular team, you would dress in their colours, you would clap a certain way. If that team won a goal, you would cheer them on. These were all things that you would do if you belonged to a certain team. But there was no one at the gates enforcing these rules. Why are you not dressed in Atlanta's colours? Why are you not cheering for that goal? You are getting kicked out. Have you ever seen that at a football game? Not at all. The fans who attended the game did not do these things because they were required to. They did them to demonstrate which team they belonged to. There is no doubt as to which team you belong to. In the same way, if you are truly a part of the body of Christ, you will desire to be like Christ. There will be no need for anyone to tell you the rules because God's law will be written on your heart instead of on tablets of stone. The world will know whose team you belong to by your conduct. There will be a desire to read God's word and seek his will. Paul Washer illustrated this, recalling that when he was a five-year-old, he would follow his father out to the woodlot in the snow. He wanted to be like his father. So he would stretch out his little legs in an attempt to match his father's footsteps in the snow. He would trip and fall and his father would pick him up again. And this would be repeated. For the true believer, this is the case. We desire to be like God, but we'll never match his perfection on this earth. In the process, we will fall down and the Father will pick us up again and this desire to be like him will continue. And so if we belong to Christ, our conduct will be different. It is in the context of who we belong to that the scriptures command our conduct. Galatians 5 verse 24, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In Romans 11 verse 36 and into Romans 12, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you will present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thirdly, just as the Israelite men were charged with the care of their own lives, so Christ will care for his bride. This is the contrast that Malachi is presenting. God is not like the Israelite men, God, Christ will never be treacherous to his bride. For unlike the Israelite men, Christ will be true to his word. We have full confidence in his promises. We have proof of this daily. God has been faithful to his covenant with Abraham. God Has God forsaken his people? The existence of the nation of Israel is testament that in spite of their unfaithfulness, God has kept his covenant. He has watched over them. He has disciplined them. 
He has protected them time and time again. This is his nature as he is declaring in Malachi. In Malachi 3 verse 6, God says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Apostle Paul could emphatically declare in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the same God who keeps us, he sustains us, and we can trust his word that he will provide all that we need. So in conclusion, today we have looked at some of the attributes of God that this scripture teaches us. We have seen that God is a covenant-keeping God who will always be true to his word. We have seen that God is a God of wrath, hating the things that are contrary to his nature. And finally, just as we belong to God, he cares for us, providing all that we need according to his word. Christ has purchased us with his precious blood and he will be faithful to his bride. He is a God in whom we can depend completely upon his word. May the conduct of our lives reflect the nature of God. I pray that as the world sees us, they will see something of what God is like. We will never perfectly do this, but by his grace, he will use us to bring people to Christ. Let us declare the greatness of God and not profane his name as the Israelites had done through their conduct. Finally, we need to find comfort in who God is. He is the God who is able and strong, even though we are weak. He is the Father who will never leave his children destitute. And Christ is the husband who will never abandon his bride. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word today. We thank you. You are a covenant-keeping God. Lord, we look to you. We look to your word. We ask that you would speak to us. Help us to follow you. Help us to reflect your nature in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.